happening now. We'd like to welcome our guests from around the world, across North America. I'm supposed to say that first. <laughs> I haven't said it in a while. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 304 for September the 6th, 2023. 304. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Matthews, North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte, where I am a STEM teacher. And I was telling Jason, I'm teaching a coding class and I was playing Scratch and getting my maze game uh, to work so that I can sort of up my game for, for some of for my kids. And that, that doesn't happen every night. But joining me as always is Dr. Jason Neifer, guru of AI and noted AI keynote speaker, or I would say AI themed keynote speaker for education. Is that yes. an okay introduction? <laughs> <laughs> it's a mouthful, but sure, I'll take credit for all that. Uh, good evening, Dr. Fryer. Um, I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Western Montana. Um, and uh, it's been raining on and off all day today, which is super nice for September because it means it lessens the chance of fire. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we used to be concerned with tornadoes and such things, and now we're we watch the hurricane news. Ooh, Hurricane Lee and all these sorts of things. So yeah, totally. I'm glad that you guys have gotten some moisture though, and hope hopefully, hopefully the, the fire season will be will be at an end. So yeah. Well, what are we going to do tonight, sir? Well, um, um, we are going to take a look at the news uh, as it relates to technology and kind of shoot it through the edge of prism to see if we can help all of you out there um, thinking about, learning about, implementing educational technology in your classrooms or in your district. Uh, you know, some things to think about. Uh, and, you know, Wes and I have a combined uh, almost 60 years of experience uh, working on this stuff. And I hope that our insights can be useful to you. And uh, we have a huge list of links every week. You can go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, and check out everything that we refer to, plus a bunch of other stuff we don't get to on a weekly basis. And um, tonight, we will do our typical stuff. Um, uh, there'll be a lot of AI things, but also some... Um, uh, well, actually, I'm going to start a little different something tonight. Last week, I shared an, or an AI tool that's interested in me, and I've got a couple more to share today, and I know Dr. Fryer has one as well. And then I want to start talking about workflows as it relates to AI, because one of the things that, well, I'll get to that a little bit down the road. And then some Apple news, Google news, uh, some big tech privacy news, Microsoft news, um, social media, some notable nuggets uh, that we share every week. And then, of course, we'll end this week with our Geeks of the Week. Dr. Fryer, um, Link Guru, where would you like to start us tonight? Uh, well, I don't want to start with the real dark stuff. So let's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, not that, not the AI dark stuff. I don't know. Shoot. Let me find a, let, let's do this one. I did. Did you do that Apple one about the low cost Chromebook or was that me? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact. So, yeah, so uh, go this for is that from one. yesterday's Chrome unboxed. And this is really interesting to me. So apparently, um, uh, a website called Digitimes has started a rumor that Apple's developing a new low cost, low cost MacBook aimed primarily at Chromebooks in the education market. While this is an almost a, a, uh, almost laughable claim with little evidence in the production supply chain, the mere suggestion is made for some interesting discussion already. That's quoting from um, uh, Robbie Payne, the uh, proprietor of Chrome Unboxed. And um, I guess where I would start with this is that it wouldn't be new for Apple to have a low-cost uh, offering intended for schools. Uh, uh, it, they've had iMacs in the past that had uh, modest specs. They've had uh, the plastic unibodies that uh, were aimed at the education market. And one thing that I can say for absolute sure is that um, if you're going to buy a Mac, the chances of it lasting a much longer time than, say, the cheap plastic and Chromebooks that tend to be where what most uh, purchasers are purchasing K-12, chances are it's going to be at least a similar investment, if not a better investment, because of the longevity of those particular pieces. So um, I'll just start there. Your thoughts, Dr. Fryer? Well, it would be a huge shift. And, you know, one of the things that, well, a huge thing that makes the Chromebook wonderful is Chrome OS and being able to, to basically have everything that you're going to use and need for the most part, right within that browser. Now, um, a Mac that 
you know, could has has macOS and 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 can install Chrome could ostensibly be similar. Um, but this would just be a huge pivot and change. However, I mean, I, I, maybe we can dig out some articles or if anybody watching the show has dug out articles, my perception is that, you know, during the pandemic, vastly more school districts went ahead and purchased Chromebooks. And I would love to see an analysis of, you know, how many districts jumped on the Apple bandwagon. I would really be surprised if very many did, even though, as you point out, the return on investment on Apple hardware is and, and always pretty much has been, you know, vastly superior to, you know, cheap netbooks and, and arguably a lot of Windows PCs as well. So uh, I think that Apple has definitely lost a ton of ground in the education space. Yeah. And so I, I think this would be would be welcome. But again, um, I don't know that there's necessarily evidence of this out, outside this person's claim. And, um, you know, we'll just have to see. But it's one of these things where an, an Apple rumor like that can get get a lot of people excited. But th- the other thing I'd say about that is Apple has made a pretty seismic shift to try and say that the iPad is what education users need to be working with. And, and being at an iPad one-to-one school now, um, for the second year, uh, I, um, I mean, I, I'm fortunate to have a, uh, cart of, of MacBook laptops in my room and that's primarily what I'm teaching my students on. Uh, that's for my, uh, computer, computer applications or media literacy classes and my, my coding classes. But, um, I don't know. It'll it'll be interesting to see because it would be a, it would be a gigantic pivot. And having gone at our state conference, uh, state ed tech conference up in Raleigh, oh, back in I think February or or March maybe, um, I did attend some Apple sessions, and of course it was amazing. But everything you know is focused around the iPad, so it would be yeah. a seismic shift for the education market if Apple changed its focus to um, a, a lower cost laptop platform. Well, and I would say that the thing that's most intriguing to me about this um, is that I do think that there's some space in the Apple Silicon world to perhaps release a lower cost device that Apple's not, you know, losing any profit margin. And you say what you want about Apple and, you know, Dr. Fryer and I are both kind of in the fanboy space of, of Apple, but the bottom line is is that they're not afraid to make a profit. And that's been true of almost every product they've released. They can afford... Um, to sell most of their equipment uh, for much cheaper and still get an industry-leading profit out of it. But one of the reasons why Apple's been such a great investment for folks over the last 20 years is that they keep profit margins pretty high and you know they're not interested in lower-end markets, uh, as, they, as they talk about very frequently. And the sign of that, of course, uh, is that you know they'll oftentimes sell a phone two or three years after it's released, dropping the price every year to, to try to get new parts of the market. And most Apple stuff has a resale value. Uh, even if you use it for four or five years, it's going to give you um, some uh, money back to be able to sell that device. But now that Apple is you know, doing its own uh, uh, Apple Silicon, their own uh, chipsets, their own chips that they're developing based on ARM processors, and now that macOS is uh, you know, based on ARM, right, or Apple Silicon devices, um, you know, their uh, A chips going back to, I think, the A8 and A9, that's a, a five, six, seven-year-old chip, those were av- advertised as uh, by by nerds uh, as desktop class processors. So imagine for a moment if they find a way to take a three or four year old chip technology, produce it in mass really cheaply, um, and then you know I, it, the keyboard's a problem, the screen's a problem. I mean, there's all sorts of places where you could get stuck here. But considering the very excellent. Uh, MacBook Air M1 is uh, was a thousand dollars, and now frequently on sale for six or seven hundred dollars. That's a, a, a there could be something here. So obviously, you know, we'll keep an eye on this, and um, you know, I, I would be curious to see how many districts that are left that are all all in on Apple stuff. I know of one in the state um, that uh, is using pre- predominantly iPads, um, but uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And having managed both iPads and Chromebooks, I mean, it's um, the the Chromebook is very, very easy to manage. And um, it would it would be interesting to see what Apple would do on the management side, because as a recovering IT director, um, that that whole side of it in terms of how you manage your devices and allow for software and 
and limit things and make things available and all of that is is pretty huge. Jamf is what you know my previous school and current school used as a mobile device manager. And anyway, that would be a key part of that as well. I know we're going to jump into to AI stuff more, but let's just to, just to get a couple of the things. This is a pretty interesting one. We haven't talked about Huawei in a long time, and this is under our notable nuggets or miscellaneous category. This is from Creative Block, which block I don't know from uh, today on September sixth. Um, and the article is headlined, Huawei's Mate 60 smartphone should have been impossible. Again, it's been several months since we've talked about this, but, you know, some people have said that the United States' decision to block microchip access in from in China, you know, it would be almost like a declaration of war uh, in, in earlier times. It's really, a, really a big deal. And I had thought that was mainly to do with artificial intelligence and, and the race for AI. But according to this article, uh, and the subtitle is, Have U.S. Sanctions Failed? The chip embargo or, or prohibition um, since 2019 um, has apparently, uh, in, officially, restricted Huawei from accessing chip-making tools essential for producing 5G chips. And you were just talking about, you know, how fast chips have become and Apple's breakthroughs with the M1 and, and everything. The article is highlighting that um, apparently Huawei has has made some real strides in, in their own chip development. Um, they've utilized SMIC's most advanced seven nanometer technology um, and suggests that the, the Chinese government is making headway in its attempts to build a domestic chip ecosystem. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, at one time, did you ever own a Huawei phone? Didn't you go to Costa Rica or something and saw a bunch of them or something? Yeah, I, in fact, it was exactly that. I, I hit the Costa Rican Walmart um, on my last day in Costa Rica. This would have been two, uh, Thanksgiving 2018. And um, it was uh, 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 interesting because that was the dominant brand in the room. Samsung was a close second, and there were a handful of, of older iPhones. And this was at the, you know, the electronics department at the Costa Rican Walmart. And, um, you know, the, the thing about Huawei is that there are a lot of Android faithful in the United States that like the hardware, right? I mean, I know there are issues in regards to the potential of, of security risks and stuff. And so never really taken off here as a, um, a phone uh, hardware manufacturer. But yeah, I, I've been, you know, back when I was, you know, interested and, you know, kind of fascinated by the diversity of devices available um, in the uh, Android space, Huawei was certainly at the top of that list for me. What else would you like to do before we jump into the AI rabbit hole? Well, let's see here. Um, let's do a couple of um, uh, quick Google articles here. And um, I guess where I want to start here, these are a lot of these are AI based, but in fact, let's just do a couple of like, several quick hits on Google that are it's AI fine. based, right? We, we, so we're, we're moving so yeah, so we don't have like you know seventy articles under AI. We're we're moving them under some other categories. So that's fine. So first, um, uh, the uh, this is from uh, the rest of the rest of world on July twenty seventh. I put this article in there. What? Why did I use to weird source? Um, that YouTube is now dubbing videos with AI generated voices, and um, uh, so in other words, in, in other languages, and. That's really interesting because it's an automated process. But the thing that I keep thinking about here is that, you know, people that have platforms like uh, YouTube are going to be able to do some extraordinary things to add value to their hosting platforms. And what I think is super interesting about this is that, you know, most of the, the work I do with YouTube and AI is actually taking transcripts and, um, using ChatGPT or Claude to summarize them so that if I'm looking for a particular YouTube video, and I'll give a great example of this, um, this past spring when I was teaching an ed tech course at the University of Montana, trying to find a decent video to show off, you know, how to do this thing in Google Classroom or 
or how to do this other thing in Microsoft Teams. And, you know, I don't want to watch every video to make sure that that's doing that. So I would use, you know, the various plugins uh, that are available to in one button, open up a, a, a transcript and then a summary of the video. Imagine for a moment what happens when YouTube uh, is able to do that, right? Uh, that Certainly the automated closed captioning will get better in a world of AI. That's really exciting. Um, but also uh, the search, I would assume, will get a lot better. I would also assume, too, that the uh, recommendation engine gets a lot better. And of course, as we've talked about several times uh, in our 300 some odd episodes you know, that has a potential for scary stuff too, right? As it uh, uh, tends to have the potential to uh, create uh, or push people towards more edgy content. But I think YouTube could, could really end up becoming even more powerful of a learning tool once AI uh, stacks are laid on top of it. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the big head, the big, I don't know what you call it when they, when they draw out a, a quote there, but quote, the uncontrolled advance of AIs could mean the loss of countless jobs in the sector. Um, but that it, it says that, you know, only, only the most popular creators, Mr. Beast, PewDiePie, uh, dude, perfect. Actually, I don't even know who that is. Um, you know, are affording these language service providers to, to be, doing the the dubs into other languages it just you know we've said this before um with with the language capabilities that google has talked about at io and things like that especially with the live translation stuff like wow it's almost star trek you know with the universal translator but that is where we're going right we are we are yeah. literally going there where we're going to be able to have you know tools in our hands if we want to that can you know translate what we're saying live or or someone else can be having a phone and, and listening to it just like i guess at the united nations but there's a person yeah. who's doing that that is going to be an accessible technology for all of us and in terms of of thinking about reaching audiences yeah that that really is wild uh to think about and uh, i'm sure i mean is is youtube just blocked in china i wonder i mean because you think about all the content and they're, they're probably it probably is yeah. i i think it probably is yeah and i do know that uh and we talked about this a long time ago but you know it's true of facebook it's true of google it's true of microsoft because sometimes there will be a compromise is made to the i'll put this in quotation marks integrity of various tech platforms in order to get into um the Chinese market, um, and that's led to you know a lot of controversy in the past. What I would also note, however, is that um, uh, the a well um, AI. We haven't talked about this. Or at least I don't think we've talked about this. Um, you know, China has been slow to the AI revolution. Um, in part, and they, they have models that have been released uh, uh, recently. But one of the reasons why that that at least Westerners suppose that that China's been hesitant to jump in on this is because of the uncontrollability of a lot of these uh, tools. And you know, we've talked often of the phenomenon of hallucination and the fact that, uh, you know, we can uh, do X, Y, and Z, you know, without uh, uh, necessarily developers understanding why, well, if you suddenly are giving access to, you know, a lot of people to a model and the model is not going to hold, you know, the, literally the party line, that that's a different tool in that context. And I can understand um, suddenly why the authoritarian governments in China might be leery of that. Yeah, and some of the articles I think we'll get to a little bit later talking about the open source access to tools. It just really, the whole arena is, it seems to be pretty uncontrollable um, ultimately in terms of guardrails that people are trying yeah. to put on these models. Okay, a couple uh, other updates here regarding this. Um, um, I have two articles on this. One of them is from Chrome Unbox and then one's from ZDNet, but Google has announced a new... AI-powered proofreading tool that um, will be part of uh, Google Docs. And I, so far, the, the screenshots from it look really amazing because this is kind of what I think about um, when I think about the whole notion of you know, how do we give the power of these tools to our students, but put appropriate guardrails on it so that there is some context of learning, um, you know, that the point of learning to write is not so you can produce writing. The point of learning to write is so you develop a critical thinking skills and the ability 
to express yourself. And if you're relying entirely on a chatbot to do that, there is a strong argument, I think, that the learning suffers pretty dramatically. Now, in the context of, um, by the way, it is storming like crazy outside here, and I can't imagine the power will go off, but if the power does go off, have a good rest of your show, Dr. Fryer. Um, <laughs> um, but they're showing a really cool uh, dialogue screen in both of those articles uh, that comes from Google, where kind of like Grammarly, um, um, it goes through and makes suggestions about, you know, the text itself. And, you know, it's kind of Sherlocking Grammarly a little bit. Uh, and, you know, Apple nerds will know what I mean by Sherlocking, but essentially stealing a third party tool and make it part of the tool set. But I'm really excited about this notion. And I would also note that in a related article that Duet AI, which is, you know, the big AI play in Google Workspace, um, is now available um, and includes essential education additions too, but you have to pay $30 a month uh, for access to it. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, I have a small business um, account that I use for Google for um, my projects and such, and I'm going to buy Duet AI for that. In fact, I've already signed up uh, for a consultation with Google folks because I want to start playing with these tools now. And um uh, uh, it's really great news. And I'll be curious to see, you know, how these end up getting rolled out in schools. I would really hope that Google has a, um, an inexpensive version of, I think it's 30 a month, if I remember correctly, to get access to Duet AI, um, which is, you know, a shocking amount of expense in comparison to what these usually cost. But I am interested to see where this goes. It says Duet AI can capture notes, action items, and video snippets in real time with the new Take Notes feature and include a summary of attendees talking about the yep. meets. So is it, well, how do you, what is Duet AI? Duet AI is the meeting assistant. Okay. It's so like a plug, a plug in basically for me, for meet. I believe so, but I think it goes beyond that because uh, it could also do, um, um, uh, well, as an example, it can reduce the burden of work by generating a summary of your relevant source documents and automatically building a presentation in slides. So in other words, this is the comprehensive tool. I think it's, it's intended to be the, um, the competitor to Microsoft's Copilot um, that they're releasing in the business sector. And so this is, yeah, the comprehensive tool. And these kinds of tools that are going to be specific and, you know, you're not going to have to just imagine or, or research or whatever uh, the prompt, you know, for the, for the chatbot, right. I think are a huge part of the future with AI, because it's just going to be, uh, well, number one, this is going to be contextual for, you know, your meeting or your documents or things like that. But man, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I think so too. Um, okay, so there's a Zoom article I think I put under Notable Nuggets, maybe. Um, oh, or did I put it under something else? Uh, this was talking about uh, Zoom. Maybe I didn't put it in. Um, having AI and be... Oh, it's just probably under AI. Um, see, this is where I need a, a search for just our articles of the week. Great. All right. I don't know if I'll find the article or not. Uh, Zoom is integrating for paid accounts a whole bunch of different um, features to include. If you show up late, uh, you can go ahead and get a quick summary so you can get up to speed. Oh, I guess I, I tweeted it, but I didn't put it in here. Uh, Zoom's new AI companion will catch you up when you're late to meetings. So this is from ZDNet today. So again, the, the integration of these tools, um, I don't even know if we covered the, the API article with ChatGBT, but the ability for developers to use the API and directly you know, access ChatGBT as well as other uh, language models. Um, so anybody who's a paying mem um, customer of, uh, of Zoom is gonna be able to have these kinds of features available. Uh, Real-time feedback on its perception of your performance in meetings, uh, summarizing, um, yeah, it's just uh, pretty interesting to think about how these are going to integrate into productivity tools like this that people are perhaps already using and, um, you know, then are going to be able to make us more efficient. Um, you know, recordings of Zoom calls can be great, but, you know, do you really want to watch the call? Well, being able to readily, you know, check out a summary and if there's certain things like in your field or your department that you're interested in, um, you know, just like we talked about a few uh, weeks ago, I think the founder of Wolfram Alpha, Alpha is um, 
you know, using a, a, a script basically in an LLM to summarize abstracts from, you know, key recent articles in his research domain and, and, and just being able to then decide, oh, great, look at that. You know, th that's exactly what I'm interested in. So, you know, if you're a doctoral researcher or really any kind of researcher uh, following a particular thing, you know, we've, we've had Google Scholar and Google Alerts and things like that, but the sophistication that these AI tools are going to have, especially, and, and Jason, I would suggest this is probably coming too, right? Remember Google Alerts when you could say the name of my school or your own name or whatever that you wanted to see if it popped up in the news, you know, mm -hmm. you could get an alert. I think that same kind of agent that you're going to be able to, to write, um, you know, if, if you're doing, you know, research on the educational use of, of, uh, you know, smart assistants or, or whatever, uh, I think that's going to be a pretty phenomenal tool. And maybe those already exist, but as these platforms are plugged into the live web. I think that's going to, that's going to be a really powerful way to augment our, our research and, and stay up to date on things and also just save time because the AI is going to be able to ingest process and filter, you know, vast quantities of not only text, but also audio and video, and then be able to, you know, create playlists and point us in the direction of content. That's hopefully going to help us in whatever our particular research or interest is. Yeah, totally. And I think that's actually a very good segue, Wes, to um, I want to talk about some tools I've discovered this week and then also start talking about workflows. And um, I've been working really hard the last four weeks in my brain. This is where all this stuff lives is kind of swimming around in my brain. And and, and again, I, I know that that uh, if you are a regular listener of ours, you're, you're probably tired of, of phrasing like this, but this is a big deal, right? This is not you know, um, this is, this, this is bigger in my mind than mobile computing. It's bigger in my mind, maybe than the internet itself. But one of the things that talking I'm about, talking about AI, talking about AI, right. And the thing that I keep kind of hearkening back to, however, is that it's so crazy and hard to wrap your brain around and so intense that it's hard to start then thinking about what practical next next steps look like. And so I'm working on a grid. I don't know if it'll be useful or not, but it's basically like, okay, well, now that you're impressed or now that you are like, holy dog, look what's happening. This is where you need to go next, right? And in my mind, it's dividing up into, um, you know, how does it impact learning uh, for students? How do we teach it to students, Right. How do we use it as teachers and content planners and that sort of piece? And then the fourth piece of this is how does it change our productive workflow as knowledge workers, right? Because most teachers and educators, you know, have a lot of knowledge work-like processes. And so, um, and that, that those are four very different uses of the technology. And the ethical questions are different and the tool sets are a little different, but I'll give an example of, you know, something that's really revolutionized my workflow the last three or four weeks, which is that when I have a lot of data to process of which most of it is low value and only a little bit is high value, I use AI for that now. And so I'll give an example of this. Um, earlier this year, there was a, a legislative interim committee meeting while I was on vacation. It was six and a half hours long. And um, I putting it off and putting it off, putting it off because I didn't want to watch, you know, try to scrub through six and a half hours of video to be able to find out what this meeting said. And the minutes weren't detailed enough for me to be able to determine if it had any direct impact on my life or not. So um, I finally uh, did something. I um, uh, 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 separated the audio from the video uh, using there are several tools on the Internet that will allow you to do that. I took the MP, I'm sorry, I took the MP3 and then I found out that Office, or I'm sorry, Word Online, so this is Microsoft Word 365 Online has a nifty feature that you can upload an MP3 and it will create a transcript for you. And so I uploaded, uh, this is to start with, um, it only was able to, to do 300 megs at a time. So I actually had to downgrade the quality of MP3 a little bit because it's 330 megs. So I did that with Audacity. I uploaded it then and it created, and I'm not exaggerating here, 171 pages of transcript from this six and a half hour meeting. Um, and 
instead of reading all of it, I first just did a simple find and looked for the name of my program, right, uh, of which it was mentioned four or five times. And then I used Claude 2 from Anthropic, the, the large language model chatbot, and I've come up with a text expansion um, uh, script that uh, says the following. Um, it's called AI Knife in my text expander. Um, um, as the executive director of the Montana State Virtual School, um, school, I am interested in virtual education policies, technologies, and best practices for K-12 education. I am also focused on the development of study and online learning skills in students, educational technology, AI in education, and social studies and humanities education. Please provide a summary of an article that highlights five to 10 major points uh, most relevant to my role and my context. So I stick that in and then I paste the 170 pages of, um, of transcript. And in about 30 seconds, it, uh, it, it spits things back out at me. And it tells me the five or 10 most important pieces and occasionally will go further and even explain to me why it thinks it's important to my context. And in the last two weeks, I've went through hundreds of pages of Board of Public Education minutes. Uh, this is all stuff from when I was gone and wasn't able to attend the, the meeting live via Zoom and, um, you know, probably saved 20, 30 hours, uh, uh, you know, fumbling through a scrubber to, to try to see those pieces. And in three cases, it's probably stuff I would have skipped over. Um, uh, three important things that were happening in my state that I would have skipped over otherwise. I've done that now with podcast transcripts. I've done that with studies. I've done that with, um, I was looking at a grant proposal uh, a couple weeks ago, a federal grant proposal to try to get a sense of whether it, it matched my needs or not. It did not, but it was a much more nuanced piece than if I had read, spend 45 minutes reading through the grant application. And again, it's not, this doesn't change teaching and learning, right? Um, this is a productivity thing, but even if you're sketched out by the teaching and learning stuff, please don't ignore these tools that could help really make the paper shuffle that exists in almost every educational context, a fair fight again for teachers, principals, parents even, I think there's something really important about this, let alone what we could give our students that are doing in-depth research to summarize things like journal articles or imagine for a moment taking a scientific journal um, uh, that uh, a 10th grader would usually struggle with and say, reword this, uh, the conclusion of this in a 10th grade level and walk through with me what some of this vocabulary means. It's, it's just really quite stunning. So, so it makes me think about um, automator on Mac OS, as well yep. as if this, then that, yep. uh, if you haven't played with these tools, um, as an example, uh, we, we bought a digital picture frame for my parents. My dad still has it. Um, and, uh, it was, we, my mom was uh, sick with cancer and she was in the you know room and couldn't leave. It was just wonderful to have all these pictures. Well, you want to, um, you don't want to upload any larger size than you need to. And I think it was basically like a 720 by, you know, 480 or something, uh, not 480, but, but it was just like sort of uh, DVD, you know, quality, make an automator script and it just goes through and I could dump as many, you know, high resolution JPEG images as I want. Boom. And it's spit these out, numbered them. It'll, it automator is incredibly powerful. If this, then that is a, is a website like for smart home and, you know, I've got different kinds of scripts and things like that running. So that's the metaphor, or the, you know, the, the, the uh, comparison I'm thinking about here, because as you develop those kinds of things, Jason, Obviously, you can just you put those into the chat bot, but it's going to be interesting to see what kinds of tools can automate those sorts of things and what kinds of bots can can run. And this actually in 2019 in the YouTube series Age of AI, Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas fame and others talks, they're, they're going to try to create um, a virtual Will I Am so that these bots can be out on the web you know, learning about things that he's interested in, finding music, um, you know, news, all, all sorts of things. And that's what you're describing. So that is yeah. really phenomenal to think about ingesting that much. And I'm going to talk more on my Geek of the Week about Conmigo, but 
Sal Khan did a TED talk about three or four months ago, I think, about this. And one of the things that they found in developing Conmigo was when they give the AI an opportunity to think a little bit before it answers, it does a lot better. And so they've written into their code some of the things like you're talking about where you set up the scenario. This is the context. This is what I'm interested in. Um and, you know, it, it, fascinating. So that rather than just spitting it out and it said kind of like you or I, I mean, if we were going to be tutoring somebody or whatever, if we know a little bit more about it, we, we think a little bit more than, you know, we're able to generate it. And I don't know if that'll be, that'll be the case um, with what you're talking about, but it's just the power of these tools and the ways in which they're going to, they already can be customized to our own productivity and yep. professional, you know, need interests and needs. It really is stunning. So kudos to you for developing that. You should write an article about that, sir. Yeah, I, I, I should. People, yeah. yeah, right. Because I think that that would be of huge interest to a lot of folks. Okay. Well, Wes, and again, I'm tr not trying to dominate the conversation here. So feel free to, to, to kick me on as you need to. But You're good. Um, the other thing I've discovered this week is two tools that I can wholeheartedly recommend both of them. But um, the first one is Poe.com, which is Quora's what I'm going to call meta crawler of chatbots. Um, you know, meta crawler was a search engine in the late nineties that, you know, took all the search engines and, you know, try to, to, to aggregate the results together and perplexity AI is the other one. And they both do something similar, but they have a little bit of a difference. Um, Quora is 20 bucks a month. There is a free version available, but the cool thing about Poe is that it is, um, um, uh, I'm sorry, Poe by Cora. The, the thing that's cool about it is that you can, in essence, um, use any of the models that are plugged into it, um, including ChatGPT and Claude AI and Llama from um, uh, Llama from um, 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 Meta, and also a couple of the Google models too. And it essentially um uh, gives you access to those without having to have separate accounts so essentially twenty dollars gets you everything and then secondarily um they have tweaked out versions of the model so for example they have a, a claude 2 model that could do vastly more text processing than the existing claude 2 model can do and they've uh and, and then on top of that they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of user created bots that do things like uh, give you the opportunity to look at mid-journey uh, prompting. So how can you make a better mid-journey prompt for X, Y, and Z? So um, really cool uh, website. And then Perplexity AI is really, it's kind of purporting itself as a mix of a research tool and also a, um, um, a, a kind of an internet search piece to it, like a kind of a knowledge bot. It also accesses uh, both uh, uh, Claude and ChatGPT and a couple of others as well. And it will do the typical chatbot stuff. But I think in the end, for someone like myself, um, Poe.com is, is, is super great. I did buy a, a, a one-month prescription, subscription uh, to each of these to play with it. And I'm probably going to keep Poe. Uh, perplexity is good. Poe for me has been better. The interface is a little clunky, but still pretty effective. And I get to choose which uh, 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 model I can use at any given time and very easily also then use a different model with the same prompt to see what it, it produces. So Poe.com is great. Perplexity AI is great. They're super, super cool um, uh, models. And if you haven't purchased anything yet and, um, you want access to chat GPT, but also other models, Poe would be a better investment right now, in my humble opinion, than chat GPT. Perplexity also has a discover tab and you can see things that other people have asked it and you can like those things and follow them. And then when you have results, you're able to, also see websites that it's referenced uh, under quick search, which I would think might be things that it actually drawn from. And it's presenting results in both text and visual format. So pretty fascinating. And this would probably be a great tool if anybody else was thinking about doing some kind of ed tech play date around AI tools. Um, it'd be phenomenal. 
Yep, totally. Well, Wes, I also see you put your uh, podcast summary workflow. Why don't you talk about that? Because I think that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Sure. Well, uh, I got frustrated that there was a text limit for ChatGPT, and you mentioned Claude AI. So every week, I will take the YouTube link, and it takes it has taken. Usually, I'll just do it now. Well, sometimes I'll do it many days afterwards, but at least a day later. And then the transcript is complete to youtubetranscript.com. Throw that in there, click copy, go to Google, Google Docs, doc.new, um, you know, transcript, you know, episode, da, 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 paste it in, file, uh, download as PDF. So I've got a, a PDF of the transcript, you know, within 60 seconds. And then claw.ai by Anthropic allows me to just upload that PDF because you can upload, I think, for free up to a 10 megabyte file. And then I have a saved query, kind of like you were talking about, you know, accessing um, in your in your text, uh, quick, quick key shortcut or whatever. Um, and what I'm saying is I want a summary of this podcast, but I want you to follow this model. And so I have a past one that I wrote so that it'll see the style and you know, tone or whatever of it. And it does a phenomenal job. And I end up going in there and editing it a little bit. Um, and then I also ask it to generate 10 clever three word titles for the show. And oftentimes I'll choose one of those or I'll just tweak one. So um, I can tell how, how long it would usually take me to do these. Cause I would start listening to the show and it would sometimes take me an hour to do this and I can do this in, you know, 30 minutes or less. And so that's, you know, half the time. So that's a pretty, pretty wonderful time savings in terms of productivity. But when you think about what you're talking about, you know, meetings and just, and this also, I guess, make what you're describing makes the recording. Think about graduate classes. You know, yeah. we would, we used to have three hour graduate classes. I'm sure people still do this. Um, but think about being able to get that whole thing and then have a summary. And then what's also coming, if you don't have this yet, is going to be timestamp links, right? Because then you could tell it to, because with YouTube, if you, it, it, there's converters for this, but basically it's the number of seconds into the video and it'll play it right at that spot. So you could probably customize your script to not only point out the salient moments in a three hour meeting or whatever that they talked about your you know, your, your organization or, or a topic of interest, but then it should also be able to generate a specific YouTube link so that you can click and go right to that part and actually watch that. I mean, phenomenally powerful. And an incredible time saver, right? Oh, and, and again, if you're sketched out by the generation of text, um, you know, the generation of images, you know, there's a lot of, of cans of worms that are opened up by all of this stuff. Right. Um, Fine, but don't deny the opportunity here to introduce elegant workflows uh, into your daily processing of information. And I think in the same way that, you know, a lot of teachers and students seize the day 20 years ago with Web 2.0 tools uh, to process the enormity of information on the Internet. I think AI tools offer us that same opportunity, but in a much more nuanced way. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, uh, I want to uh, do an article that we have under... Uh, notable nuggets. And then I'm going to segue to the, the article with AI. This is the one I didn't really want to start with because it's very dark, but um, I think there's some important things to talk about here. So John Green, a fellow Montana, Montanan, um, is a uh, not only noted YouTube creator, but also um, an author. And so this is from the New York Times. Uh, we've got a gift link and the headline is, for John Green, the battle over access to books has gotten personal. And so the article talks about how um, many of the teen, the books that he's written for teens are now blocked in uh, different libraries. And the thing I'd like to highlight to this, and this is going to be the segue to the next article, is the comment thread for this. I mean, our newspaper comment threads are, are not, not always great, but I think this one is pretty excellent in terms of the things that people are pointing out, like the high school teacher who says, if you're really worried about kids reading, relax, because reading has just been going down precipitously as far as books being checked out of the library. If it's not on their phone, a lot of kids aren't looking at it now. And there are a lot of things to be concerned about that students have access to. But many of these books, including John Green's books, are really not what we need to be concerned about. And so anyway, the the article is, you know, kind of a culture war article, but talking about um, is, he's... Well, it says his home state of Indiana, but doesn't he live in Montana? He's uh, well, his brother John does. Okay, uh, maybe John well, or not John. Well, um, hey, the other guy. 
Hank. Hank, Hank Green. Yeah, Hank yeah. lives in Missoula. Okay, Hank. And is by the way, cancer free. I don't know if you saw that on the internet, but he uh, he his cancer's in remission. So, uh, shout out to John Green, great guy. Or yeah. uh, no, Hank Green. <laughs> Sorry, guys. They're um, both talented like brothers. You're yeah. ever going to listen to this podcast, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, love to both of you. Um, but I I know their mom lives here, and John may have grown up here. Think well, and think about this. We've we talked about how we've no, we noticed started noticing, for instance, on YouTube the live transcription coming up, and that's made me more aware of you know what we mentioned because there are certain Western provinces of China that if you would talk about you know um, yeah that you know you you could uh, you can you can be on a list uh, if if you you know wanted, wanted to travel there, um, depending on what you say. Man, think about this because these models and the speed of processing and everything is just going to be. You know, it, th think about being able to just basically have have models that are going to ingest all new video that is being cr created. And, and yeah, someday, just like a Google alert would look for text and say, hey, did anybody say, you know, Jason Neifer or John Green? Anyway, that's possible with video. OK, here's the segue uh, at the top of our AI articles. And by the way, if we didn't say it earlier, uh, you can go to edtechsr.com slash links and you can access our um our uh, Google Doc that has all of these links on it. And that is a great way to not only follow along with what we're going to talk about, but also see all the things that we don't. And you can subscribe to our Substack and get that too. So Ars Technica today, the headline, AI-generated child sex imagery has every U.S. Attorney General calling for action. Subtitle, a race against time to protect the children of our country from the dangers of AI. There are some links, which I'm not going to put into our show notes that are in this article that are much more explicit and troubling. Um, one of the biggest things it says here is that because la uh, large language models have been open sourced, so Stable Diffusion has open sourced Dolly, and uh, and and actually, I guess Stable Dif what is um, Stable Diffusion is the name of their um, their LLM. Unfortunately, when things are open sourced. And we talked about this, I think, last week with the show was the Greg Rakowski example. Greg Rakowski, wonderful uh, fantasy art creator of dragons and castles and wizards. Uh, when you would put his name into uh, Midjourney or many other language or many other generative AI image generating tools, <clears throat> it would create art that mimicked and, and looked just like his. And so he was able to successfully lobby some of those to remove his name, to put in guardrails or restraints that prevented people from doing that because his work is copyrighted, et cetera. But because you've got open source models, you know, the open, people in the open source community just, you know, bypassed that and made, made a fork of, of the uh, project. And so what this article goes into detail about <clears throat> is the fact that uh, because of really stable, uh, stable diffusion, there are all kinds of projects that are um, not only you know creating fictitious child pornography. Um, there's also the whole thing about revenge porn and and people taking celebrities or other famous people, um, and just it's real it's a real mess. So to have all 50 uh, attorney general in in all states, whether they're red, blue, purple, or whatever, um, that that doesn't often happen. But unfortunately, I think because of the open nature of these tools and the access to open source versions of large language models, then um, I don't know that this is going to be effective. But what the attorney generals are asking is for Congress to establish an expert commission to study the means and methods of AI that can be used to exploit children and specifically propose solutions. And then after considering those recommendations, um, act to deter and address the exploitation. So, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of the positives, wonderful uses, amazing, you know, we're going to have the good and the bad. And this is one of the bad sides of generative AI. Okay. Let's see here. Um, so much. Oh, um, this is an article from VentureBeat on August 29th. OpenAI seeks to dismiss majority of Sarah Silverman's and author's claim in ChatGPT lawsuits. And um, we've talked about this a couple of different times. And, you know, the kind of here comes the lawsuit headlines, um, you know, were dominant about four or five weeks ago. But I thought it was really interesting because the argument they're making is kind of the argument I was thinking about. 
that saying that something um, is a, or that you're violating someone's intellectual property by creating derivatives of it, which is really what all, or a lot of creation is, is a very few, you know, completely unique things. And instead, um, most things are a derivative of what a creator might have seen or heard or watched in the past, um, that that, you know, creates a, a, a problem um, when you're trying to limit saying you can't use AI for this, this or that. And um, uh, the, the article is pretty interesting, but the super bottom line is that there are a lot of opportunities, uh, I think, in, in space of kind of discussing what creation means and what's copyrightable. And the open uh, AI's uh, answer the, or answer back to the lawsuit is certainly a, a interesting part of this. Absolutely, because it's talking all about fair use and transformative works, right? Which yep. is which is really a great conversation to be having with students and teachers and, and everyone. Um, it's fuzzy. Uh, this has been a, a drum that I have have uh, beat on for a number of years. Um, it's not just a, a binary. Oh my gosh, that that's copyrighted. You can't use it. What are you doing with it? And this yeah. also depends on you know where you are. If it's U.S. copyright law or or if it's somewhere else. But yeah, that it, that is fascinating. And ultimately, no, I'm not saying these things are sentient. But these models, these these algorithms, these um, programs, they are ingesting huge amounts of content and and of the of the web and. To say that it's illegal to ingest, to, to ingest this is almost like saying, well, what are you doing? You're reading my work. You're looking at my work because that's really what they're talking about. They're saying these models that are trained shouldn't have the ability to look at my artwork or read my writing or my books or something like that. And anyway, it's that, that wouldn't fly when you're talking about a person. Um, and so anyway, there's an interesting progression here because i'm you know i'm i'm thinking of these models as already having exceeded human capacity in many ways i mean we're not going to be able to to ingest or or consume the the quantity and volume of content that these models can or be able to process them at such unbelievable speed so good article yep okay uh, looks like we're heading to the top of the hour here is there anything else we want to make sure to get in this week sir let's see um yeah, I think, let me see. Oh, I don't know. These are, some of these are, are a little bit dated. Um, we did the duet one. Oh, okay. Let's do, uh, oh yeah. Um, a privacy one. And then actually under social media, let's do the social media one. You had put this one in. Um, all hail the new EU law that lets social media users quiet quit the algorithm. Um, do you want to talk about that? And then I'll throw in some comments. Yeah, so um, uh, this is super interesting, and I, I would really, really, really like it if uh, um, if this were available uh, um, in the United States as well. But as part of EU's uh, really hard nudges against um, social media companies, they are essentially telling these services that they have to allow users um, uh, uh, to decline personalized content based on relevance in other words stop tracking users uh in order to deliver them other content and um they uh, uh facebook was early to the game they introduced a chronological uh, uh feeds tab last month um uh uh which has been globally although i now that i think about it i don't think i've ever seen that so i might go in and look for that i'm not spending so much time on facebook anymore um and then um um, uh, notably, it says the Facebook news feed does not show any suggested for you posts at all. And um, you can now also uh, uh, tweak other tools for this reason. But the one I keep thinking about is I would really, really, really like both um, Instagram and TikTok to give this a possibility. I mean, I get what the challenge is because they're doing this because you stay in the tool longer. You'll see more advertisers. They'll make more money. I get that part of it. 
But I, I think to myself, well, this happened the other day. Um, I follow several creators on TikTok that I like a lot, a lot of news creators um, that I know I've hit like a lot on their videos. And then one day, um, you know, I forget about them and then they're doing a live and that gets pushed to me first. I'm like, well, where have you been? And then I go and look in their account and they've been posting the last four months. Just those things aren't getting kicked up to me at all. And that's frustrating to me because when I follow someone, it's because I want to see their content. And it feels the same way on Instagram. Um, Facebook feels the same way, too. But I think this would be a fabulous law. Um, uh, and, and if not, I would probably be more likely to use a tool that allowed this for me as well. Think about when we're going to be able to have bots that can ingest our, quote, feeds for us. And then we can write the, the algorithm to, to see what we want, you know, yep. Nuzzle was a phenomenal tool that I loved that what Twitter bought and then killed or did Facebook. I think it was Twitter um, where you could basically see things that people that you follow were, were recommending um, that, that same, that, that idea, a Nuzzle like experience, but then you can customize and tweak it. So see it just chronological or anyway, prior, you know, pri give priority to certain people sort of like a Yoda's list or something like that or Anyway, the different ways that you could tweak your feed. That'll be incredibly powerful. And I think somebody's got to be working on that. Yeah, absolutely true. Okay. Um, I want to do a couple a couple here. I'll try to be quick. Uh, so Ars Technica, connected cars are a privacy nightmare, Mozilla Foundation says. Uh, Tesla is actually the worst offender here. And um, the quote, when I tweeted this out, where did my mouse go? The, it's the the problem with having multiple monitors. You can lose your mouse. Um, it says data privacy protections are almost non-existent when it comes to automobiles. The statistic in here, um, eighty four percent of the brands they analyze, these are automakers, say they can share your data, and seventy seventy six percent say they can sell it. And like Nissan's privacy policy says. They can gather sensitive information, including your driver's license number, your national state ID, your citizenship status, immigration status, race, national origin, religious, philosophical beliefs, sexual orientation, sexual activity. <sighs> what? And evidently some of this has to do with you know, direct contact with users or Nissan employees that are going to enter that data into their database. But anyway, do we ever need privacy law in the United States uh, and other parts of the world? Indeed, we do. And then um, this, there are actually two articles, one that you had done and then one that I put in. This is under Tech Correction, uh, Big Tech Privacy. The article you put in from June uh, from the Washington Post is uh, these academics studied falsehoods. Or nah, maybe I did, I guess, because it doesn't have a semicolon. These academics studied falsehoods. Uh, now the GOP wants answers. Maybe that, yeah, that's the one I, I guess I did. This, and so I, I just saw this. Uh, this is a gift link as well. Um, but basically, there's some uh, media literacy and disinformation scholars from the University of Washington, from the Center for an Informed Public, where I was, you know, in, participating in a workshop back in June. Uh, Kate Starbird is one of them, uh, and there's others. And so these are folks that have been publishing about disinformation and about moderation and, quote, censorship of uh, social media, and in part because of um, some folks in Washington uh, it's not, it's not doxing them in terms of giving their personal information, but basically calling them out. You know, these folks have had death threats and, and faced all kinds of negative consequences to the point where Kate Starbird, I think, is no longer on Twitter and has really uh, rolled back, unfortunately, her, you know, public, um, uh, you know, her, her, her public visibility. Um, and then there was another article, maybe I did this one too, uh, that was on August 1st. And this was about Twitter which we could call X, I guess, if we want to. Uh, and it was Twitter sues <laughs> hate speech researchers whose scare campaign spooked Twitter advertisers. So again, um, researchers in academia facing, I guess, what would have been previously considered kind of unheard of, you know, consequences um, for doing their job as academics. So I thought that was notable and um, hopefully not a sign of the times for more things to come. Um, but the topic of content moderation, also considered to be censorship, I think is just going to continue to be a huge issue. And it's going to be with AI models as well. When we talk about alignment and alignment to values, you know, whose values? Um, those obviously are not in, in universal agreement. So I wanted to get those in as well. Do you want to get another article before the Geek of the Week, sir? 
no, I think. Um, oh no, I, I, let, let me just do this just quick ridiculous one. This is from the Microsoft area. Um, I'm saying this is from the Yikes department. Um, Microsoft retracts an AI written article advising tourists to visit a food bank on an empty stomach. Headed to Ottawa. Here's what I. Here's what you shouldn't miss. So Microsoft Travel, which is one of the you know gazillion random newsy sites that Microsoft has. Um, recently pu published, and quoting from the Engadget article, and retracted an AI-generated article that recommended people visit a Canadian food bank as a tourist attraction. Um, the article, headed to Ottawa, here's what you shouldn't miss, including recommendations for catching a ball game, honoring fallen soldiers at a war museum, and swinging by the Ottawa food bank. Um, people who say, come uh, come to us and have jobs and families to support as well, expenses to pay, the AI written section about food, a uh, food bank section read, life is already difficult enough, consider going in, in into it on an empty stomach, which is just strange. And if for no other reason, you need to have, especially right now, right, and, and probably into the foreseeable future, don't just put AI generated crap out there without vetting it first, right? Because it is a recipe for UG if you don't. And consider the ways that you can, you know, write content or at least bulleted list outline form content. You know, we were having some folks using AI today in a meeting and, you know, it's, I think it, it's powerful, um, but it certainly needs um, and I think deserves a lot of our input and, you know, iterative massaging to get it to say the things that we wanted to say, or, or just to be helpful, I guess. All right. Uh, I've got two and they're both related. Um, the first one is Sal Khan's Ted talk um, that he gave. I want to say it was three weeks or three months ago, um, four months ago. Uh, it's got a million views, how AI could save, not destroy education. And I think I saw you on Twitter. Didn't you, Jason, talk a little bit about Conmigo? I did. Um, had you seen this video before? I, I well, I didn't see that one, but he was on a podcast uh, episode that I listened to that was really, 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 really good. And I have to say, um, I think I think uh, the con folks are doing a really thoughtful job with Conmigo. Yes, and so I I just recommend you take a look at this video. It's a summary of um, what they've been doing with Conmigo and Conmigo, and it has a lot of great examples. And uh, as I said, I've been paying for this for a while, maybe since May, but haven't really gotten into it. And I had my web design students go ahead and join it, and I'm going to probably I don't know I may end up um, using it with other classes too. But the ways that that students can write together and it's it's being um, written, it's the the code is being set up. So the students aren't just getting answers. They're truly, you know, having a tutor, but the, there's just all these different creative possibilities. And again, it's taking this idea of an open chat bot, but, you know, putting constraints and, and guardrails around it to, to, you know, try to make it as educationally useful as it could. And the dream that, uh, Salcon talks about is providing, you know, every student with a customized tutor and then also teachers with their own assistant to be able to create lesson plans and, you know, being able to, uh, create better educational materials. What is your Geek of the Week, sir? Well, um, I'm also sharing uh, some media about AI. This is from a really, really, really ec excellent and in-depth episode from Lauren Lezik's, uh, Lawrence Lezik's podcast, Another Way. And it's it's long. It's, it's, it's an hour and 20 minutes. But um, Professor Lezik talks to uh, Tristan Harris, who I think we've talked about a couple of times uh, in, in the history of, the, uh, of our podcast. Uh, he's executive director of the Center for Humane Technology, and they talk about the very real threats posed by AI from a political discourse uh, standpoint. And uh, uh, Mr. Harris makes a fascinating argument that I think is, is pretty spot on that in a lot of ways, this is the continuation of the UG that social media brought to our elections and political environment. So, um, you know, uh, I, 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 there are a lot of people yet that are left, I should say, that, that don't strongly believe once they get into this, that, um, you know, AI will have stunning impacts on our society. But if you uh, uh, still doubt that, uh, this podcast is an opportunity for you to hear more from scholars about where they think this is going.
Absolutely. And the idea he talks about there that social media was first contact with AI and we did pretty poorly when it came to doing anything constructive on a regulatory basis about it. And so second contact is are these LLMs and what we're seeing with ChatGPT and these other models. And they're the case that they make for um, a regulatory body, not just Congress, but a regulatory body that could address these issues um, because people are saying that, you know, it could pose a threat similar to nuclear weapons. So. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, serious stuff there. All right. Well, sir, when you are not here sharing on the EdTech Situation Room, where are you and how can folks find you? Well, um, uh, a good place to find me is Twitter, but I'm actually finding a lot more engagement lately on LinkedIn. So just search for Jason Neifer on LinkedIn and there I am. How about you, sir? Awesome. I am on LinkedIn as well and several other places. And you can go to westfriar.com slash after uh, because I'm still on Twitter and threads and K-12 leaders and various and sundry places. But this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are uh, almost every week podcast coming to you live on Wednesday evenings at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We encourage you to visit our website, edtechsr.com, where you can download smaller MP3 audio versions as well as compressed video versions. But subscribe to us on YouTube and or Facebook because we have all of our shows archived there as they stream. You can also subscribe to our Substack and you can get all of the links to our website as well at edtechsr.com slash links. So if you've got any feedback on the show, especially in ideas about workflows or tools or anything like that, we'd love to hear feedback and uh, you can reach out to us and we'd love for you to join us live. And we've had two v live viewers out there. My, one of them is probably my dad. Um, whoever you are, we appreciate you joining us and definitely feel free to join in the chat room. Stay savvy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. <laughs>